It's good to have you this morning. Uh, if you don't know me or if you've never seen me, my name is Pastor Colby. And what I'm going to do is release the children to Pastor Amy so I don't get in trouble. So if there's any children who want to go to a children's church or the nursery, you can go see Amy right here in the uh, left hallway right here or your right. Uh, but again, my name is uh, Pastor Colby. I'm the outreach and recovery pastor here. And um, I get the preach this morning, which uh, I always enjoy doing. Um, I don't do it on a regular basis, um, and, but when I do have the chance to do it, I am so grateful to be able to do that for, uh, with you. Uh, we've been in a series called The Year of Jubilee ever since the new year uh, started, as you can tell by the screens. Uh, and Pastor Mike has preached um, two of the sermons of the series uh, already, and now we are in week three. And so I get the privilege again to... Um, preach uh, to you this morning and to come before you, and we'll be in that old dusty book that people seem to skim over, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, actually, and we'll be in verses 8 through 13 this morning, and uh, what a great passage this is. I know we, Leviticus tends to kind of get bogged down and, and boring and uh, we kind of, you know, about halfway through it, we kind of, oh, let's just flip to the next book, right? Uh, but before I dive in this morning, because we're going to go rather quickly, I have a lot of stuff to get through. And as you know, if you have heard me preach before, it seems like time is never on my side. Uh, and so, actually, I, I went and bought myself a clock right over here, actually. Um, and I know there's clocks everywhere, but uh, really, this is just for me. And so, I don't know if you can see it. And so, that, yeah, this is just for me, and just so that way I know what time it is, because it seems like I always lose track of time, um, so that way I, I do know what time it is, um, and that way hopefully time can be on my side. So we're going to jump right in this morning, Levit Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through uh, 13, uh, but before we kind of jump into the passage and start picking apart a little bit, uh, there's some things that we must know, some, just some background things that I tend to like to go over, no matter if, if they've been gone over before. And it has to do with Israel, right? Israel is, is unique. Well, why are they unique? God has called them out of the nations to be distinct, to be different than all the other nations. God brought them out of Egypt from all the trouble and trials of their lives to be a father to them, to be their God, they were therefore not to live as the people in Egypt where they came from, right? Nor were they to live as the people in Canaan to where they were going. So when Israel entered the promised land, each family received a generous kind of plot of land as an inheritance. But God knew, God knew in his sovereignty that troubles might separate the people from their inheritance. And God knew rightly. Farmers would lose their house and property because of crop failures, of drought. Women had their husbands die, and their children wouldn't have food or clothing. So they'd go into debt and lose their property. Others, others would lose their money in a business venture. Or maybe they would be on the wrong side of a military action. They and their families would be sold for their debts into servitude, like slavery, right? You see, but there wasn't any debt consolidation back then in those days. There wasn't any loan forgiveness, debt forgiveness programs. Whole families, even the children, would work 10 hours a day 
just for something to eat and a place to lay their heads. And you see, this might go on for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. Almost a whole lifetime for them, possibly. But then something came. Something that we've been talking about for, since the new year has begun, right? Something called the year of Jubilee. A year of Jubilee. Something that, that brought great hope. Great freedom. And this is what we find this at in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 13. And excuse me if I mess any of this up, because uh, I have practiced this. It says, you should count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 40, 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On that day, or on the day of, the, of the atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. On the tenth day of the seventh month, while the whole nation was fasting and repenting of their sins, for that was the day of atonement, the high priest killed the substitute, right? And he went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood seven times before God. If the sacrifice was accepted, he would come out and announced that they all had been forgiven. Everyone would worship and thank God. Then at dusk, the shofar, also known as the ram's horn. I think I might have a picture of it. Yep, there's many of those. The shofar was sounded at the temple or the tabernacle. And I did have a video to play, but I decided to take it out because again, the time's never on my side. Anyway, they would sound this so far, the ram's horn. Then on the surrounding hills right nearby, others' horns would take up into announcement. From the mountaintops to the valley lows, in all of Israel, they would blow these ram's horn. And oftentimes these trumpets were used to warn people. But this time, it was used to declare victory, to declare freedom to declare liberty throughout the land. And when the debtors and the servants throughout the, uh, the country heard the shofar, they would drop their work where they stood, pack their belongings, and they would head toward home. As soon as they heard the horn, they were free. They were free. Can you imagine hearing this and the feeling that they felt? Some of them, 30, 40, 50 years, they've been in servitude, paying off their debts through work. And then they, finally, the year of Jubilee, they, they heard the ram's horn. They were poor no more. They were slaves no more. They were homeless no more. 
Families were reunited. Men hugged their wives and children again. They were free, and praise God, they were free indeed. They were shouting and dancing in every town. For whatever mistakes or bad fortunes that had been made in the previous years, it was all reverse. It almost seemed like somebody pressed a big reset button. There was a great reset there. Something else I want us to see this morning. It happens in verse 10, okay? It says, there is a release to every inhabitant in the land. In other words, if the Hebrew became so poor so that he sold himself as a slave, then he would indeed be released. They didn't have the idea of bankruptcy like we have today. See, if a person got into destitute things, they would have to sell themselves as a servant. But again, on the year of Jubilee, they would have a fresh start again. They would be able to start fresh, to start over. I think, frankly, there's a lot of people who need a fresh start, who need a great reset. And God gives us exactly that, a new beginning. He restores us. He sets the captives free. He enables us to proclaim liberty throughout the land. He gives more description of it in Leviticus 25, verses 39. So jump there, just jump down your page with me a little bit, and you'll find it. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. In other words, you've got to respect him. He's your brother, okay? Then continuing on, verse 41, then he shall go out from you, he and his children from, uh, with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. These are very important pictures that God is giving us here. You shall respect your brother, and then you shall let him be free. And then back to verse 10, it literally says, you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land. Proclaim means proclamation, right? Say it out loud. Say it with great confidence. Shout it out. I want liberty proclaimed. That phrase right there might ring a bell, Right? No pun intended. Because in fact, that phrase, you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land, is engraved on the famous liberty bell that can be found in Philadelphia, right? They rang that bell on July 8th, 1776, so that the citizens, so that the citizens of the city could come and hear the first reading of the Declaration of Independence. They wanted that scripture engraved on the bell, Proclaim liberty throughout the land. It's significant. It's important to proclaim liberty throughout the land. You see, God wants to set the captives free. He doesn't want people to stay in bondage and debt, to be set free by the releasing or forgiving of debt. It's an opportunity to start over, to start fresh. Again, don't you just love that? about God, doesn't that seem to be a recurring theme no matter what book we find ourselves in? Setting the captives free. But remember, there's two sides of this that we also need to understand. 
when it comes to the year of Jubilee. The first is for those who are, who are indeed in bondage and debt, selling themselves as slaves. The second side of this, though, is for those who must be willing to forgive that debt, who must be willing to indeed set those captives free, to release them, to let them go. You see, there's two sides of this. In Christ, our debts are forgiven, and we are indeed set free. We love that. And oh, how much we have been forgiven. A grace that is greater than all of our sins. It's a glorious and wonderful thing to receive. But here's the thing. We love to receive the blessings of the Lord, the grace of God. It's wonderful to receive. But they also, and we also have to be willing to forgive. The same thing applies to us here today. We have to be willing to forgive those who have hurt us, who have lied to us, trespassed against us, who have stolen from us possibly, spoken mean things about us behind our backs. Maybe we have to forgive our parents for not doing the things the way that we thought it should have been done. How much has God forgiven you is a question you should ask yourself. And then you should answer very quickly, amazingly much, abundantly much, more than my mind could ever comprehend much, then, we sh- then should we not also forgive that much as well? Let me put it into perspective a little bit then. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul writes here, Be kind to one another. Be, tender-heart- be tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Then the apostle Peter mentioned something similar in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Peter came to the Lord and he said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brothers who sin against me and forgive them? Up to seven times? You see, I'm convinced here that when Peter said this, he thought he was saying something probably pretty clever. Because back in that day and age, the theme of the day was three strikes, you're out. Three strikes and you're out. All right, that's one. I'll forgive you this time, buddy. All right, that's the second time. You're, you're getting pretty close. That's two strikes. All right, that's the third time, and you're out. That's it. I'm done. Three strikes and you're out. And that's the way it was in that culture. But Peter, he makes a statement. He's so sure and convinced that Jesus is going to commend him for this. How many times should I forgive if my brother sins against me? Up to seven times? Because remember, I mean, that's, that's four more than what the three-strike rule is, right? Then the Lord responds, and Jesus says to him, Do not say you up to seven times. I say to you up to 70 times seven. He blows Peter's mind out of the water. Have you ever, like, added that up, multiplied it? That's 490 times, right? Not that anybody's counting. I don't know who could count all of that, right? I mean, the idea here is not that you would actually count, right? But imagine, though, if we did have an app for that. Like, we'd pull out our phones, right? I mean, it's probably like the forgiveness app. We'd probably, like, pull it out, you know, and have everybody's name in there who we're keeping tab on, right? And like, oh, hey, you're on the 483rd time. You got, like, seven more times to go, and that's 490 times. All right, you're getting pretty close to the edge. 
Hey, but we don't have that, right? So the idea here is not that we would keep track because we can't keep track. Because if we start here with this person and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive and forgive, right? Then, oh, there's somebody else who wronged me and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. I've already lost track, okay? For one, my wife knows I can't multiple task because I'm bad at it, okay? So the idea here is not that we would keep track. But after a while, you don't have to count because you become a forgiver. It's who you are now. You see, for those of us who bear the name of Christ, this becomes our nature now. We become forgivers freely and openly. You see, when you forgive others, it it sets you free. It does. It does something for you as well, almost more so than it does the person that you're forgiving. Bitterness, anger, and hurt has kept and can keep so many in bondage. And I'm a living testimony of that. You see, if you hold on and you hold on and you hold on and you grit your teeth and you just repress it and repress it and you keep it in, all it does for you is just create unhealthy cycles in your life until one day you explode. You need to forgive. You are holding on to something. I know I was and still am at times. I have so much childhood trauma from when I was a kid. And a mom who was addicted to drugs, chased drugs and men. I had a dad who, praise the Lord, he was a hard worker and uh, had clothes on my back, food in my mouth, roof over my head, but I was missing my mom and my dad was never around. So many other things in life and I had bitterness and anger for so much of my life that led me on a downward spiral of drugs and alcohol myself from the age of 13 until I was 17 years old. You see what bitterness and anger can do? and keep you in bondage, it can keep you confused, and the devil can use it, and uses it very well. And this also reminds me of when I was in high school, right? I was in this class, it was like AP, Econ and Government, I don't know if you know what that is, but um, not the most exciting class, to say the least. Anyway, this teacher for this class was one of my favorites. I really liked him a lot. Part of it was because at the beginning of every class, we would kind of joke around and banter and uh, banter about football teams, right? We were both big NFL guys, and he liked the Denver Broncos, and I liked the, the Dallas Cowboys, right? And so we would start off the day with just a little bit of banter, a little bit of fun, and one day I come to class, and we start, as usual, joking around, right, and giving all the stats and the history and about which team is better. You know how it goes, right? Then he starts to pass around papers. All of us had turned in some big report, some big project, He brought mine to me, and I was looking at it, and I said to myself, where is my cover? If you know what the little covers are, the little plastic covers that you put over important pieces of documents or big projects or reports, right? And so uh, I was being the perfectionist I am and the teacher's pet I am, and I put a cover on mine. And so I was wondering where this cover was, right? And then he finished his handing out the papers, and goes back to the front of the class, and he had my cover in hand, waving it around. He said, class, do you know what this is? This right here is nothing but a big effort to impress. This is just for show, right? 
don't do that, class. Rise above this. What the worst part is, he walks back to my desk and slaps the cover on my desk. And so I said in response, very hurt, but very angrily and humorously as well, that's the last time I am saying something nice about the Denver Broncos, okay? Never something nice again. And everyone busted out laughing except for me. Because again, I, I was hurt. That was mean. My stomach burned. I wanted to say something more than just that. And when class was over, I closed my notebook and I darted out the door. I never wanted to see the guy again. I thought about going to my guidance counselor and changing my class. So I just went the next several hours throughout my day just, man, replaying that in my head, right? Then that afternoon, I was making my way to the school parking lot. And I was rounding the corner to, to go out the door. And here comes Mr. Denver Broncos himself coming around the other way. We bumped into each other. Man, talking about a God thing, literally bumped into each other. I said, oh, excuse me. I tried to quickly get around him because I didn't want to see him. He reached out for me and he said, stop. I tried to grab my, my shirt. I looked at him and he said, this morning I was wrong and I'm so sorry. And he starts to cry. This grown man, big guy, played football, just tough guy, said, I need you to forgive me. And I said, okay, it's all right. We're good. He said, no, I need to hear the words, I was wrong. I need to hear those words. Please forgive me. At which time now I'm crying because I'm an emotional wreck because I have bottled it up inside. I said, I forgive you. I forgive you. You see, I, I needed to be set free too. And so, of us, so many of us, we need to be set free. He needed forgiveness that much is for sure. He did something that was wrong, that was mean. But I needed forgiveness. I needed that forgiveness just as much as he did. God wants for us to be able to declare liberty in our lives. And sometimes it's not so much about what we do that creates bondage and debt in our lives, but stuff that's been done to us. That's why in Celebrate Recovery we say hurts, habits, and hangups. Because oftentimes it's not what we do to put, that puts ourselves in bondage, but it's what's done to us that puts ourselves in bondage. People hurt us, and God wants to set us free from that. We need restoring. So many people in this room who need restoring, who need a year or jubilee. It's a joyous thing. And the thing is why it's so joyous and so important. I don't think it's rung a bell with you yet. And it's this. We may not have a jubilee like the Israelites did back in the Old Testament. Because we had somebody come fulfill the year of jubilee. And it was Jesus. Jesus is indeed our jubilee. What do I mean by that? Well, back in Luke here... Um, Chapter 4, verses 16 and 20. It tells of a strange story. I don't have it on the screens, I don't think. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, right? He went into the synagogue and was asked to speak, and he opened the Old Testament. 
to Isaiah. Pastor Mike has read it, I think, a couple times in the past couple weeks. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sat down to teach and he said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The shocking thing is, is that Isaiah was saying that the year of Jubilee would be fulfilled with the Messiah. And then in Jesus' own sermon, he had three points I am the Messiah. The Jubilee age has indeed arrived. And my mission will be one of deliverance, one of liberty and setting captives free. And Jesus did just that. He preached to the poor, he healed the sick and the possessed, and he set people free. We need this jubilee today. So many of us do. And so many of us have experienced this jubilee. So the year of jubilee is relevant to us because we've all made bad choices. And bad choices has been made to us. We've incurred a huge debt, a huge sin debt that nobody could pay but the spotless lamb. We've been sold into slavery to the devil. And we've lost our spiritual inheritance, right? We've lost our inheritance. We're just like the people in trouble in the Old Testament. But thank God for the high priest, right? Thank God for the one who has gone to the cross, who has gone into the Holy of Holies and he has sprinkled his blood to atone for all the world's sins. And the apostles, starting first with John the Baptist, right? They were sounding the ram's horn. They were sounding the shofar. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically through the gospel, right? Started with John the Baptist and carry on through the apostles, sounding the ram's horn, declaring liberty, by means of the gospel, of the good news, to tell us, to tell all of those who would listen, that if we just place our trust and faith in Jesus, all of our debts would be canceled. All the prisoners would be set free. Our inheritance of salvation, of salvation in heaven can be restored to us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so magnificent? So promising and so hopeful? You see, many people today are in bondage, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, eating disorders, fear of the future, or maybe feel of fear of failure, bitterness and anger, Anxiety, depression, PTSD, childhood trauma. I could go on and on. I have a whole list. You name it. Doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from. Many people are so bound by their bondage, their sin, that they don't know which way is up and which way is down. That was me for so long in my life. Even though I'm 23 years old from so long in my life, I lived in bondage and sin. 
So many people probably in this room live lives of quiet depression or desperation. Quiet desperation. We don't know what's going on in our lives in this room. We know only a glimpse, right? Some of you may not. Some of you are closer with others. I was reading a book a month back or so, and it's called Recovered. And I was reading it for Celebrate Recovery, and it's a wonderful book. And it says this right here. Again, remember I said, it doesn't matter what side of the tracks we come from, right? You can be like me and come from a broken home, suicide across the board, addiction, drugs, alcohol, divorce, sexual sins, you name it. Or you could come from the other side of the tracks. Man, you have never taken a sip from the the bottle of death in your life. You've never said a cuss word. All you've known is Jesus in church. And this quote right here put it into perspective for me. It says, we're all in need of recovery. We're all in need of liberty, right? We're all in need of some kind of saving, of, of recovering from something. Why? Because we're all, all of us, are recovering sin addicts, being called day after day to put off the old self. And Jesus is the one who can help us recover completely. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from. Jesus came to bring you out of that captivity, no matter what it is. Deliverance begins with a decision, a decision to let Jesus lead you out of that prison that you're in. John 8 so famously says in verses 31 and 36, uh, through 36, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching that you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I think one of the greatest tragedies, again, I didn't grow up in church. I haven't been a Christian for, for very long now, so I don't really know much. But one of the greatest tragedies I have seen is for people to live in darkness when they could live in the light. You see a lady by the name of Rose Crawford. She had been blind for 50 years. Then she had an operation in Ontario, Canada, in a hospital there. She said, I just can't believe it, as the doctor lifted the bandages from her eyes. She wept, because for the very first time in her life, she saw something she has never seen before, a world that was different, a world that was dazzling and beautiful, that was filled with color and form. And the color greeted her eyes, and now she could see. The sad thing is about her story, though, that I think 
which is sad about many people's story, was that 20 years of her blindness was unnecessary. She didn't know. You see, she didn't know about the surgical procedures that could have taken place. That there could have been an operation to restore her vision at the age of 30 instead of at the age of 50. The doctor said to her, or said in the quote, she just figured that there was nothing else that could be done for her condition. Much of her life could have been different. Much of her life could have been different. And so many people's lives could be different if we just let Jesus heal our blinded spirit. If we just let Jesus remove the scales from our eyes. So many people don't know that they're blinded. That they're in bondage. And I have one more illustration here. I'm going to call Daly back up and the worship team here. Because we're going to close with a song. Uh, Mike has been challenged for a couple weeks now to get used to the uncomfortable. And I took that challenge personally. And said, okay, Lord, what do you want from me? And I'm going to do something uncomfortable for me, at least this morning. I'm going to open up the altars during this last song here for you to come and make business with whatever dealings that you need to hash out with the Lord. Whether it's giving your life to him, recommitting your life to him, forgiving someone else, whatever the case may be, you know what needs to be done. So do it. There was this young lady she was speeding through a Georgia small town. She was traveling 70 miles an hour in a 55-hour speed zone. That sounds a lot like me because that literally happened to me. <laughs> the police pulled her over and wrote her a ticket that would cost her $100. She didn't have the money to pay for it and ended up having to go to court over the ticket. In the courtroom, the judge said to her, you were found guilty of going 70 miles an hour in a 55-mile-per-hour speed zone. You have to pay $100. The young lady said, I'm guilty, I know I am, but I just can't pay it. I don't have $100 to pay. Well, if you don't pay the ticket, we'll have to lock you up for the weekend, ma'am. I can't pay the ticket, but I don't want to go to jail. Can you please have mercy on me? The judge matter-of-factly replied, I can't change the law, ma'am. The law says that you have to pay $100 or spend a weekend in jail. Those are the rules, and I can't change the rules. Starting to tear up, the young lady spoke in a small, fragile voice. Isn't there something you can do? I don't want to get locked up. Please have mercy on me. The, the judge looked down on her, pushed his chair back from the bench. He unzipped his robe and he took it off. He went over to the side and picked up his jacket and he put his jacket on. He walked down and stood beside the girl, reached into his wallet 
and brought out a $100 bill and put it right by her. He put the $100 bill down on the bench, took off his jacket, re-zipped his robe and got, behind, got back behind his bench. The young lady, he said to her, young lady, you've been found guilty of going 70 miles an hour in a 55 mile per hour speed zone. The law is a law and I can't change it. The law says you must pay $100 or spend the weekend in jail. But I see somebody else has paid the price for you. Somebody else has already paid the price. God saw us speeding down the highway of sin straight toward trouble. God unzipped his robe of deity and put on a jacket of his humanity. He came down and died on the cross and he paid the price that you and I could never afford to pay. He picked up the tab for us. He indeed rose from the dead three days later. He zipped on his glorified body and he ascended up to heaven. He paid a debt I, he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. And I needed someone to wash my sins away. It was four years ago when I had my year of Jubilee. When I had my sins washed away from all the bitterness and anger in my life, from all the drugs and alcohol that had pervaded my life. And it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. I still don't have a great relationship with my parents. And I still struggle with the bitterness and anger. God has freed me from the drugs and alcohol and I am so grateful for that. But it seems like, much like the Apostle Paul has talked about in, um, before with the thorn in his side, pornography has been the thorn in my side. A nine-year pornography addiction seems like something that is so daunting to get away from. And bit by bit, through sanctification and God's Holy Spirit in my life and my heart, he has begun to weed out all of that has destroyed my life. So I'm gonna let them close us out with this final song here, and you can come. Jesus says to come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you liberty and freedom from your bondage. So you can come this morning. Maybe it's not for yourself. Maybe it's for somebody else. So I invite you this morning to come.